with mediocre fart jokes Who look just as white as me But if you had to choose Between an overqualified mother And me For your own company about a job Because you can't have one or the other Don't choose me She looks like she's got a lot together Don't choose me On my butthole. Don't choose me. Yeah, I'm extremely insecure and I can't stick to a deadline. Don't choose me. Wait till I'm 25. It's the Greener Bastards Podcast. Our guest this week. Preston and your host, Keegan Winsky. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Greener Pastures Podcast. I'm Keegan Witzke, one of the editors and contributors to both the podcast and magazine, where we're always striving to find the better joke. Today, I have the honor of interviewing my past teacher and now certified real-life friend. She is one of the founders of the satire site, The Belladonna, as well as a co-author of the book, New Erotica for Feminists, Fantasies of Love, Lust, and Equal Pay, which you can buy in hard copy, digital copy, and as an audiobook. You've seen her writing in almost every satirical place you can think off the top of your head, and she's not only become a fantastic friend, but a fantastic mother. Please give it up for the awesome Brooke Preston! Woo! Thank you so much for having me. That, I mean, I want to be introduced by you to all aspects of my life that you made really? me. Well, yeah, you made me sound great. I love it. Oh, like a coming up to her local grocery store. She's looking for all the fruit <laughs> that's right for herself and her family. Give it up for Brooke Preston. <laughs> ah, beep, 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 beep. Oh, my God. <laughs> we all need a hype man like you in our lives, Keegan. So I just want to jump right out the gate with the first question, which no one ever seems to ask about you, is that you were a music major in college. What was the deal? What major was it? Details. So um, I'll back up and, and answer your question by saying where I grew up was not, you know, I grew up in Southeast Ohio. And so I was very musical as a child in that I sang in church and would perform at, you know, like singing the national anthem at a high school game or, you know, something like that. Um, and I was then I got very into um, choir and then did a bunch of like honor choir and travel and things like that, um, in high school and early college. So that had been like my experience with it. Um, but I wanted to go, eventually I sort of narrowed down my choices through a story too long to talk about here to Ohio university and, and really wanted to go to Ohio university. Um, and it's still one of the best decisions I've ever made, but they only at the time offered like a classical music program, like a traditional, almost like a conservatory style program. So it was very opera and classical driven. I really would have preferred to do musical theater or like 
there's really no such thing. I mean, maybe somewhere there is, but there's really no such thing as like a choral performance program because there's really no careers in that. So yeah, you, you know, you can be like an educator, which I didn't really want to do. And, you know, you could study music education in that way, but I didn't want to be a choir teacher. I just wanted to like sing in choirs forever and have someone to pay me to do it. Yeah. And like, that shouldn't be a fantasy that you get to have if you're in Europe, it should be for anywhere. But um, what was a favorite memory of yours that you had when you were at Hardcore Music Driven? So I have this group of friends that were part of these travel choirs with me. I was part of the All Ohio State Fair Youth Choir, where you actually live at the state fair. And it's like this boot camp for singers that is just totally more magical than it sounds. Um, at the time, it was like a 250-person choir made up of top choral students from all over the state. So it's just magical because it's like the thing that in your own high school makes you feel maybe not the coolest. Suddenly you're with all the people that care about the thing you care about. So going to that was like just this whole eye-opening experience for me. And then from that, there was a smaller group that was chosen that uh, of 40 singers. And then we got to sing for like governor's inaugurations and I don't know, all the things. Then we took a like a three-week trip to England and we went and sang in England and France and Wales, and sang in all these huge cathedrals and all the things. So all of which to say, even today, I am still friends and on a group text almost every day with like 15 of those people. Yay! Yay! And like, we always talk, we're, the, the group was kind of formed in the style of, no, no one that's listening to this is of the age that will know this group, but your grandparents might, is um, Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, which was this very old style. They were wildly popular in the 40s and 50s. It's like a band leader and an orchestra and then a choir that would come out in, in like full evening gowns, you know, and sing these gorgeous songs. And so we sang a lot of their arrangements and um, our director had studied with Fred Waring and all of these things. So we've always talked about like, if we become independently wealthy, like reforming the group now in in that style and just sort of like doing something like that just for funsies, it would be awesome. Welcome to the Quarrel Podcast. We're talking about Quarrel <laughs> I know. I know it has nothing right? to do with the, but it does. Uh, stuff. It does because it has everything to do with feeling that first taste of something where you're like, ooh, I'm interested in this. And now I found other people that are interested in this. And I will now make a, a very golden segue to say I also had a similar experience around that same time. Um, and even with some of those same people with comedy where it was like, oh, like you like comedy as much as I do. And you know, this is more than just, hey, I like to laugh, you know, yeah. it's like, hey, we're really obsessed with the comedy industry. As a young person from like, I would say like Appalachian light, Ohio, yep. I didn't know what to do with that, though, right? Like, it was just sort of like, oh, that that's something I'm deeply passionate about. Okay. And I was like, consuming it in a very intentional way of like, I want to make this a big part of me. But I had no plan for like, how that could look like nobody had modeled that for me in a way where it was like, Oh, you could do this or this or this. Like I definitely knew second city was a thing. You know, I knew there were sort of these quote unquote, like farm teams that sort of fed into these things. Like maybe the groundlings maybe was on my radar at that time, sure. but I, I didn't really have a sense of just like how one went about 
going through these ranks and like ending up as a comedy person. I just knew yeah. that I loved it and I wanted it to be part of my life. Your hometown, Columbus, Ohio, which you've mentioned to me is basically the Appalachia. It's a big feature in the 2019 film Dark Waters. And for those who haven't seen the movie or heard about the controversy, could you explain your own words, what happened and what it was like growing up there for you? DuPont, the company, was dumping um, C8 at this, basically something that was used to make Teflon at the time. They had internally done a lot of research and had anecdotal evidence of basically all the women that directly like worked with the substance had babies with terrible deformities. And, um, you know, they, they knew that it was bad stuff and they were actively hiding that. And so I knew growing up, we didn't, have the C8 link yet, but I knew that there were a lot of, because I have eyes, there were like three plants right there on the river, like a half a mile from my house where I grew up. I heard people pass around the statistic at some point, and I, I truly don't even know if this is correct, but locally, people would say that we had the second highest cancer rate like per capita in the country. because, And I think that bore out at least in the sense of like, we didn't have a lot of huge hospitals. But for such a small town, like on every corner, there was like a dialysis center or, a, you know, something like something health carry where you're like, <laughs> there's not that many people. <laughs> like, Why do we need so many doctors? And so there was definitely like a sense that something was not great. But I don't until I was in high school and this started to come to light or even early college, like late high school, early college is when this became sort of like an expose. I mean, DuPont, you know, they are the only, one of the only places you can work in the mid-Ohio Valley that pays a decent wage. They pay well, and they treat their employees apparently well. They also do a huge amount of PR. I remember uh, our, them doing a lot with our school where they would come like plant flowers with us on Earth Day. <laughs> What? Yes. And I'm like, but now looking back, we were watering those flowers with poison water that they poisoned. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you know, I've definitely had a lot of family members that have like had cancer very young. And I, I have had not had cancer, but I've had issues that I shouldn't have had being as young as I was that I can't definitively say were because of that. But it's it's interesting. It does change like how you see like the sense of place. Like, I think to me that it was just sad. It made me angry, but it also just made me sad that it's a place where, because they're, ha they're offering jobs. I mean, it speaks a lot to power, right? Which satire speaks to a lot. And is like, yeah. it speaks a lot to like, they could continue getting away with that because it was kind of a perfect soup of like, not, a huge population of highly educated people who would be looking into that or high powered law firms or, you know, like the, the people that would normally be the gatekeepers for that. Or like right. there's no university there where there, like, a lot of research would have been done into the water or soil. So like, it's just, it was kind of an absence of those things, but then also like they held all the power because they held the money and the jobs in the town. And so it, it definitely taught me a lot about, power structures and how that, um, you know, why it's important to speak truth to power in a very real way, um, which is sort of approaching comedy from the more serious end. But, you know, when you're talking about how to write satire and why to write satire, that those are real conversations. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's where I got a lot of my experience of writing much harder hitting satire, because I thought for a long time the definition of satire was comedy for the angry. 
which we, uh, yeah, it might not be true now, but um. yeah, I would say, well, I think for a long time, the definition that I had always heard and that had been taught to me was like the comedy of outrage, which is like, it yes. starts with the nugget of, of an injustice, right? Where it's something. And I, I think I have since adapted my favorite definition, That not that that's not true, though that can be a perfectly valid and good definition. I think my, my favorite definition of satire now would be, I heard someone call it um, the lie that tells the truth. You know, and I think that that's, that is right. You know, the lie being there's something in satire that heightens out of reality, you know, because you're maybe taking on the voice or the persona of the person with the vice, you know, that you're maybe writing as Ted Cruz or whoever. Right. But like, um, and so by nature, it's not like a personal essay where you're just like writing something that's true. You're, you are contriving this situation that mimics reality but is not reality and heightens out of it but then the whole point of it is to reveal something about the human experience or about injustice or a vice that is true to help us recognize it and hopefully correct it as individuals in a society wow well that was very intellectually stimulating (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you were looking for laughs, you're in the wrong place on this comedy podcast. We're going to talk about choral music. We're going to talk about poison water. We're going to talk. We're going to get deep in the weeds on dissecting jokes because everyone loves that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, is that one of the first things you ever wanted to teach when you became a teacher? Like telling new writers, look, just relax. Yeah, I mean, it's so. Going, I will do another beautiful segue and say. One of the first things you learn um, when I was a music major and I was learning all of this classical music theory, my music teacher said, my, my music theory teacher um, said basically that we're going to learn all of the rules of music theory and they are fixed and finite. So in level 101, you're going to learn all of the specific fixed rules of music theory. Then in level 102 on, we're going to break all of those rules. Yeah, <laughs> And he's like, that's what makes beautiful music. You know, basically like in the like Baroque period and some of that, like, you know, everything was pretty much by the rules. And then everything that came after that was like an inversion of that or a subversion of that. And very much that's true in pop culture as well. And in comedy as well as like you used, to, you know, you could go back to sort of the dawn of television or even further back and and see like there was a setup and there was a joke, you know? Um, and now obviously we're in a time where we're able to experiment with that more and, and play with what comedy is and why it is. And yeah, what can it be? Let's pay attention and in really smart, but still really funny, devastatingly funny ways. Yeah. Well, thank you again for that intellectual dive 2.0 and for making me sound super smart as if I made that transition on purpose. You absolutely did. You set me up. Well, before we go any further, I want to play a game that you actually inspired me to make. Yes. That's right. It's game time. Brooke and I are born and bred Midwesterners, which is why I want to play with you, Brooke, a game called Oh or Jeez. 
I love this game already. For those of you who don't know, people who are born in the Midwestern part of the United States have their own unique slang or idiom, whichever you prefer to call it. Brooke, I think you told me that your definition of oh is a combination of both I'm sorry and you messed up. Is that right? That's how, that's what I feel the definition is, yes. Okay, good. It's like the ultimate pow- like passive-aggressive Midwest move, I feel like. But what would your definition be of geez? It implies something unexpected happened. Even if you're just exasperated, you're like, I can't believe how exasperated I am. Jeez. Do we feel like it is Jeez? Like, do we feel like it was originally short for Jesus? Is this like the Midwest? Yes, totally. Yeah. My dad used to say Judas H. Priest, which I thought was funny. (laughs) I think also as a parent, sometimes having to find creative ways to swear. Um, And I really enjoy my daughters, which she's eight now. And so when she gets really fired up about something, she just says the word cuss. (laughs) Which I really enjoy. She's like, oh, like, what a cuss. Yeah. (laughs) She's also at the age of eight. My daughter's like eight, but she's really like. 30 inside so like so like she just is so funny because like she's hyperverbal. she's because she's an only child and she's grown up around me and my husband is also that way and so like we just if she now will come to me and I'm like as a writer I feel like I have to explain to her like well the reason we don't swear it's you know like words can't really be good or bad it's really just because like our words have power and she'll just be like yeah 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 got it Just give me a list of things I can't say. I don't, we don't need to have like an hour long discussion about the power, (laughs) the power of the lexicon of the American, like whatever. She's just a quality person. Yeah, she sounds like the best. All right, same focused. Uh, Here's how the game works. I'm going to list off 10 different scenarios or situations. Mm -hmm. You have to explain to me whether it is an oh or geez moment where you would say that word. (laughs) And then if as an option, you could give an an example of how you would respond using oh or geez. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm very excited about this game. First situation, you bump into someone at the grocery store. Oh, that's oh. How would you say that then after you realized you both bumped into each other? Oh, you don't say anything after that. You just say, oh, and then you don't make eye contact, and then you <laughs> then you move on. I'm learning so much about even more of my culture, and this is great. <laughs> Next one, uh, someone cuts you off in traffic. Ooh, I don't know if that's an oh, or a geez. I think it depends. Oh. <laughs> uh, you can either say, oh, geez, or both. Mm. It is an option. You can go, oh, geez. Like, oh, would be if somebody in your neighborhood that you know like pulls out in front of you like if somebody pulled out like of their driveway and they didn't see you like that might be an ope or if like a like a kid ran in front of you on the sidewalk but you know the kid and you'd be like oh hey buddy <laughs> like <laughs> almost killed you it would be closer to g's but probably if we're in the comfort of our own car we would say something alone less midwest because it's also about like can the other person hear us right (laughs) oh the my anger like anger midwest is also like for me personally if i get cut off i might say are you kidding me to myself in my car no one else is around no one can hear me i do the same are you kidding me that you're a trash person like you're a trash (laughs) human and you've just done this Oh, God, yes. Uh, next one. Your kid spills food on their newly washed clothes. Oh. 
That's that's a G's. That's a G's. Oh, that's nice. If someone else's kid does it in front of me, that's a no. That would be like, because I don't have to clean it up and I don't have to have the consequences of those actions. It would be like, like, oh, you spilled a little milk there. <laughs> that's okay. Aw. And then like a little head pat. If it's your kid, you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole new layer to the game I didn't even think about. Are you kidding me? We've uplayered it. We're, and then it's like the whole speech where you're like, those are your new shoes. <laughs> Did we not just talk about the rules for your new shoes? And it's like, <laughs> you hear yourself giving the exact speeches that you got and that you hated. And you're like, it's unfortunate that I didn't find a way to like innovate this more <laughs> in the generation. Oh, wow. Like in the generation between where I was like, I'm never gonna do this to my kids and where I'm doing exactly this to my kids now. Uh, ooh, seeing your ex at the grocery store. Uh, that would be run in the other direction, I think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and you run in the other direction and like under your breath as you're like running, you're like, oh geez, oh geez, oh geez. <laughs> Or another, another favorite of mine is just, oh no, I feel like something that doesn't get enough play in comedy, you know, everybody wants to go clear up and like drop F-bombs or like, you know, whatever, but oh no is so much funnier to me than it. Just like, oh no, oh no, oh no, <laughs> oh no. My favorite is, um, I do the Shia LaBeouf now. <laughs> What's that one? No, 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 no. <laughs> Next one, uh, having trouble parallel parking. Mm. That's probably an ope. That's a solid ope because you're like blaming yourself. Like, like it's like, oops, but also like be better self. <laughs> so I was like, oh, oh. Wait, better, like with the parking space be better or you as a person? Yes. <laughs> okay. Someone's really passionate as they're talking to you about their horoscope. Oh. Mmm. That that's a G's. That's G's. Like oh or like wow. Oh wow. Like a that'd be like an Owen Wilson, oh wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wow, you're a Leo, wow. Absolutely. Capricorn, Capricorn sunrise. Okay, um, we just submitted a recurring sketch, which is Owen Wilson gives tarot card readings. <laughs> like, nine of cups, wow. <laughs> uh, last one, you're with your friends and you're not as favorite friend at a party is wearing the same outfit as you. Mm. If it's like you're responding not to them, but you just see them across the room, that's a G. Yeah. If you run into each other, it's an O. <laughs> like, like if it's like if you're talking, if you like just see that person and you're responding to their face about you both wearing the same outfit, then I think you have to go O. Wow. And on that note, there wasn't a prize to this game other than you are truly a Midwesterner. This has been Oprah G's. Yeah, yeah! we're Preston. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I feel like a winner. It didn't occur to me until after 
I finished taking your classes online that you are juggling a lot of stuff in your life. A full-time job, a writing job, writing a satire and creative stuff on your own time, keeping a family afloat, keeping yourself afloat. What have you noticed works for you and your work-life balance? Work-life balance is, to me is just not the right word. It just doesn't, nothing's in balance. <laughs> I don't know. So then what would you say? What would you call it? I don't know. I, I like to talk about seasons. I think seasons of things are really important to me. Like you can have it all, but not all at once. Oh. I found that out when I was a new mom. Like you can pursue only so many things in a day, like with your whole energy. You know what I mean? And sometimes you need to lean more into like, what's in needed in that moment. Like in the first year of my daughter's life, like she needed me like all the time, my body and to stay alive and my, you know, care. And now that she's eight, she doesn't need me every moment of the day. I still like hanging out with her. And obviously it's still important to me, but it's a totally different scenario than having like a two month old. Right. But also like having the day job helped me to, I, I'm a person that like probably fights too much structure because I feel like it's almost like the antithesis of creativity, which is of course a lie. Um, And so I was surprised to find how much help, like it was very helpful for me to like have that, like this is my day job now and I'm at my day job. And then now is my family time. You know, I mean, obviously life is messy and it's not always going to work out that way. Like you might have to step out for an appointment or to do this or do that, but to basically have my time organized and to be like, I can do comedy on evenings and weekends, but that doesn't mean that it's less important to me. If anything, that means that I have a designated time to like do this now. And that doesn't mean it's a hobby. It doesn't mean that it's not as important to me as my day job. It's just, I don't know. I'm 41 now and I'm sort of like, I have to be a certain amount of like practical. Like I have a mortgage. I have an eight-year-old. I have to be where I'm at in my life. I can't go perform five nights a week at a club because A, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm just not going to do that. But also I'm not a 20-year-old, you know? So like I have to kind of create the career in the space that I have. And I think the older I've gotten, the more comfortable I am with that idea that like it doesn't delegitimize it because I can't go do the thing a 25-year-old would do. You know, that also means that I bring a different skill set to the table and like, I can, I can have perspective and jokes that that person has not earned, you know what I mean? And that I can bring that to the table. I used to, when I would fill out like an application or a packet or something, and I was like 35, I would always kind of write it almost as like a disclaimer. Like, I know I'm on the older end of like the people that you're getting applications from, but like, I can, I can still hang, you know? Yeah. But like now I lean into that as like, you're going to get a thousand applications from a 23 year old named Chad. And they're all going to have the same jokes because they've all had the same lived experience. I've lived all over the country. I'm a mom. I know what Midwestern people want. I know what people in Portland want. You know, I've lived all this life and I have jokes about all of those things. So I, I would be the person in the writer's room that can do this thing that they can't do. So I think like every writer should think about things they perceive as a weakness in their life, whether it's their age, or, you know, their ethnicity or, you know, whatever it is, like lean into that and say like, you don't have a hundred people like me. You need a me. Wow. Holy crap. That was very, wow. I'm a little stumped for that for a second. Wow. Let's just sit with that for a second, Keegan. Let's just sit. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I love what you said 
there are jokes or things that you can write about that you've earned. I've never heard that thing before. That's so true. Was there ever a, a light bulb moment for you when you realized you had that advantage? I don't know. I don't know that I had like a light bulb moment with it. I just think over time I've gotten more comfortable in my own skin, which hopefully is just a product of like, I mean, there has to be some benefit to aging. It can't just be all like sagging and lumps, right? Like it has to be, we have to get something out of this journey. I think it's just been a slow realization that it's like, who cares how old I am? Like, I can just keep getting better. And I think I'm a better writer now than I was when I'm, I was 30. And I definitely know more about comedy. And I definitely have a bigger audience and a bigger network. And and also, like, I'm, I'm a rule follower in some ways. Like, I am so the person that, like, didn't want my parents to be upset with me. And you know what I mean? I was not the black sheep child at all. I was the youth group child. But I really kicked back at an idea of like an author- a misplaced authority figure telling me what to do or like bureaucracy. Like right. if it's just like, well, this is just the way the industry works. That just makes me want to like kick the door down and be like, no, it's not. <laughs> and I think like that's part of what the Belladonna was born out of was that idea of just like, well, you get jobs by going through UCB or being a stand up and like stand up as a culture for women have found it pretty toxic or exclusionary and you know satire and and writing and all of this is like something that I have we found a lot of community in and there's an inherent amount of relative safety in as being a woman and so that's empowering and but the idea that like the pipeline has to look a certain way or that you have to be a certain age I mean 20 years ago I mean there was a joke on 30 Rock like that running joke that like everybody came from Harvard right like you know you were you were in the Harvard Lampoon and then you went into a writer's room right or you were someone's nephew <laughs> like that's basically how you got to be in a writer's room and so like the pipeline is changing but it changes so slowly i also like am always amazed even now i mean like covid kind of forced the industry's hand in this and i'm glad for that and i hope that there are some lasting changes after this kind of settles back into a new normal but like I can't think of another industry that is so anti remote work. Like there is absolutely no reason you cannot write good jokes remotely, but you know, and and they did during the pandemic, you know, but um, before that it was like, Oh, there's no chance you would be hired into a staff role from anywhere other than New York or LA. But like for a mom that really limits your options, right? Because you're like, well, I can't be at a job 12 hours. I, I can't be at a writer's room till two in the morning it's just one of those things where there's a lot of inequity that's baked into like how the industry functions and what it's willing to do. And so um, one thing that I've kind of put out into the world this year and I've like just started to see some traction on is like, because of where I live and I choose to live here, I have family here. I was like, I would like to get into doing more like variety shows or roasts or like award shows because that's like, I could fly out to LA for a week or to New York for a week or do it remotely. It's about like building your own path, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, hire more mothers. Yes, hire more mothers. Normalizing hiring more mothers. Yeah, hire more primary parents, which isn't as catchy, but like, yeah, because like men can be that too, or non-binary parents or, you know, just anyone on that like, uh, you know, spectrum of gender, I think can be a parent, but like, it's more about like the hire someone who is like can't just step away for 12 hours and not be there like hire hire primary caregivers they're 
they know how to work hard and they know how to prioritize their time. Yeah, especially when they're like, okay, this is my time to sleep. I'm sorry that I can't fix your Apple joke at 4.30 <laughs> in the morning. But you know what? It makes you efficient. When you have less time to devote to it, but it's something you really care about, you learn to become incredibly efficient at punching up jokes. So like, I think being a parent made me a better comedy writer, even though I have less free time to spend on it now, because you just have to get to the joke faster. And you know that there's like, you know that there's a certain disadvantage there that you have to like push past the initial joke everyone's making on Twitter and like find your own voice and just nail it the first time a little bit. I would argue that a mom or a primary caregiver wouldn't need to do that at 4.30 in the morning because they would have done it right the first time. <laughs> yeah, now because we're talking about it, it makes me think of a choir. Oh, I'll mention a choir story in a second. I think we I should remember, bookend uh, this podcast with 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 choir is what I'm saying. Yeah? Like, I feel like, yeah, when we started there and I think it should like come full circle. Ooh, how are we, how the hell do we bookend with choir? How would, uh, what is, all right, so what's something, all right, I got it. So when you started being super creative in your choir days, what's something that you wish you told yourself when you were starting to be super creative? For example, when you were wanting to pursue going into choir or just being artistic, what's something that you wish you told yourself back then that you would want to know now? Not for like, wanting to make it successful or anything but to bring ease to yourself mm. like growing up yeah and wanting to and want to pursue something creative yeah I think okay yeah if I could tell past me anything uh, on the career front it would be like a few things like be more comfortable in your own skin just like trust that who you are has value and that if somebody isn't into that thing that that's okay <laughs> that's fine because then you're you're freed up right just to be like everyone hasn't doesn't have to like my flavor like that's fine and then you can just create things that you like which is full of so much more joy and then the community that you do ultimately build isn't based on like what i hope people like it's like based on something that's actually fulfilling to you which Alexandra Petri, who is brilliant, who writes the compost um, satire blog, or not blog, but site for um, the Washington Post, um, she said something to the effect of, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but basically she said, like, she, over time, she realized she would rather write something that is nine people's very favorite thing in the world than write something that is like nine million people read and go, eh. <laughs> like, yeah. I, generally, the things that you think people will find the least interesting, or that you generally try to hide because you think those make you like not comedy legitimate. Here's a perfect example of that. In college, I would do sketches, but they were part of this like campus ministry group I was in. We would do retreats twice a year, and the sketch that we called it skit crew, which I hate that term now because a skit. I hate just the name skit, but like sketch crew. Um, was like every week for our meetings, we would like put together a funny little sketch. But then at the retreats that we would go to, we would do a full 90 minute review. And it was like 250 people that we were performing for live, this whole 90 minute review. So we would do like original sketches and we definitely did some SNL stuff that we sort of remixed. And But for the most part, it was like original characters and original sketches. And for the longest time, I felt ashamed of telling people that because I was like, well, it doesn't count if it's for church or whatever. You know what I mean? And then someone was like, 
I, I admitted that to someone that I'm like, most of my college experience, like I have a lot of sketch writing experience, but it was, you know, for church, it was for campus ministry group. And they're like, so you're telling me you had to make an audience laugh after they just listened to someone preach about revelations for two hours. <laughs> um, and like a group of 250 people that had just been like, you know, uh, like preached to for two hours, you had to like make those people laugh. And I'm, that's way harder than just like stepping on stage at a comedy club. You know, they're like, you will not have a bigger challenge than that. <laughs> like you had to warm a cold crowd all the way up. <laughs> I think that was a good pin at the end. We brought back. I think choir. we nailed it. I think it. that worked. Yeah. I think it's amazing. Okay. Then I'm going to say thank you immensely to the amazing. Thank you. thank you for having me. Yeah. Make sure to check out all of her stuff at brookeprestoncomedy.com. And if you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, you can catch her on all the Columbus publications out there. Seriously, she's everywhere. Anything else I forgot to mention, Brooke? And just various podcasts. Um, and I was just on an online game show last night, Adult Spelling Bee, which is wonderful. Um, I was on an online game show for charity about boy bands. And honestly, like that was the peak of my career. So... You're not going to top out after that. I mean, that's that's the best. Yes. So that's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. See you on the next chat. Goodbye. Goodbye. This has been a Greener Pastors podcast. Starring Brooke Preston. New episodes every Monday. Want to share your satire? Go to Greener Pastors Magazine on medium.com to learn how. And remember to follow us on Medium, the Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time.